0: Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 26 of the Nathan Seawood Show.
1: The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.
0: Hello my friends. Welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to have you back every week as always. I hope you're having a fantastic week, killing your goals, feeling good, feeling fulfilled, feeling on purpose, on mission, making someone's life better and brighter, serving the people and doing what you love to do. I'm uh, sitting at home in Tokyo, but I'm just about to get on a plane to LA this week. I'm meeting a a client in Sedona, Arizona, and we're going to be doing a one-on-one intensive as part of the coaching program uh, that he's involved in with me. And something called this phase. I I have a phase called the Big Leap. There's a great book called The Big Leap, which forms the basis of all my coaching. But uh, I like in all my coaching programs to have a big leap, a moment when you actually take uh, a scary leap towards something that um, we've been working towards throughout the coaching program. And so I also like to have a a flying component. You know, there's a a flying bug that's inside of me that I like to fulfill in my coaching program. So for the Big Leap, we also do a skydive. So I take my clients skydiving in the the big leap phase so this week we'll be in Arizona for two days and then at the end of the two-day intensive together we'll skydive into the Grand Canyon in Arizona which is going to be an amazing experience so uh, I'm pretty excited about that and pretty cool for my client to be able to experience that it's another good way to um, experience the fear of the big leap in real time in a a 30-minute flight and jump (laughs) so uh, excited to go through that this week, uh, I've been doing my own reflection as always. Um, as a coach, I'm, I'm doing my own work and my own personal development and my own deep work. And uh, the big lesson I've learned this week is just uh, how I still don't take responsibility for everything that happens in my life. Uh, when it comes to, especially my business, I, there's always something to blame. I'm always, I can't do this because of um, because of my flying job. I'm too busy, so I can't do this on oh, this this didn't work the way I wanted it to. Well, because I, was, I wasn't clear on some of the agreements that I made. Um, so it's, it's been fascinating and I'm really just recommitting to taking a hundred percent responsibility for everything that happens to me, everything that occurs in my life, the way people show up, the way my team shows up for me and my business. I want to take a hundred percent responsibility for that. What's happening with you? Are you taking a hundred percent responsibility? Like when you listen to this podcast, how much time are you actually investing in it? Are you just listening and you've got it on in the background and, yeah, it's nice to listen and then you move on, or are you going deeper into it? Are you reflecting? Are you taking notes as you go? Are you stopping at the end of the podcast or throughout it just to, to pause and reflect on what, you know, the conversation the topics we're discussing so you can really allow it to sink in? Are you reaching out to the the guests that we have on the show are you buying their books are you going deeper into some of the topics or are you just just going with the flow and listening which is either way is fine but for me taking full responsibility is owning how i show up to something so it means every interaction every client i have every proposal that i make whatever i do i show up a hundred percent so that i can own the results i know that i've put everything into it and i can own the results when things don't go your way, the easy thing is just to turn and start blaming things. And it's just not the way I want to operate. The flip side to it is when you own everything and you take a hundred percent responsibility for your results, guess what happens when you succeed? It's all you. You can take a hundred percent responsibility for that as well. If you're blaming all the time, well, you got to blame people for when things go well as well. Um, so you can't ever feel deeply fulfilled. So just, uh, a refresher for me to take 100% responsibility. It's been a great reminder. And a guy that takes full responsibility for his life is my guest this week. Sunil so Arora is a American-born uh, Indian who would be classified as the smartest guy in the room. Sneal graduated uh, from UC Berkeley, he was involved in sociology and economics there, he ran the basketball team, learned a whole bunch there and tragically Sunil's father died when he was 18 which completely changed the perspective of his life and just brought everything into perspective for him and changed the way he approached the world. He's worked in some incredible companies including startups, he's worked uh, on economic policy for the White House, it's, he's just an absolutely amazing intelligent guy and we dive in deep here and he shares some of the key points and lessons that he's learned in his life. I think you'll enjoy it. Take some notes, get involved, and enjoy this personal conversation with the powerful Sunil Arora.
1: So I was born and raised uh, in California, in the Bay Area to be precise, Silicon Valley. Proud son of Indian immigrants. Uh, my dad came to this country uh, in the late... 60s, The classic story of someone who came here when he was in his young 20s with nothing, came to New York actually to go to grad school at Cooper Union for engineering. First from his family, big family in India, to come here and just set up his life in an incredible risk-taking way. He went back a few years later and married my mom through a classic arranged marriage. And they built a wonderful family here the youngest of of three, two older sisters, uh, well, four years apart, and um, my parents lived in New York for several years. My older sister was actually born in New York, and then they moved out to California where I was born, and I often use the analogy uh, related to baseball I'm a huge fan of, in that um, I was born standing on third base, which for the non-baseball fans out there uh, is just... The equivalent of a of a good starting position. It takes a, a little bit to, to get to that point, but yeah, that's cool. This is uh, this is something that's uh, been in my subconscious for a long time, and it really moved to my conscious state of mind probably five or six years ago, related to the the work I'm doing now and kind of how I view the world.
0: And so, what's it like, like growing up with Indian uh, parents? Well, you're Indian, not just Indian parents, but uh, what's it like uh, that dynamic? It was
1: a, a focus on academics and discipline and structure, but combined with an appreciation for the uh, culture we came from, very large Indian diaspora, uh, South Asian diaspora in the Bay Area, friends that my parents made when they came to the country 40, 50 years ago, it settled in on uh, the same area with those folks have grown up as family. they connected on on their level and then the the kids that they had after that. Uh, So we were surrounded by that, which was this beautiful celebration of two cultures, the American culture we were growing up in as kids born and raised here, and then the Indian culture that our parents came from, which was a a wonderful way I often think about it as we got the best of both worlds. One of the many reasons I believe that I and most um, second-generation immigrants were born standing on third base is because we didn't have to assimilate Culturally, with language, customs, et cetera, our parents had to do all that hard work uh, and establish themselves. And so we got to grow up literally just cherry-picking the best of both uh, and enjoying the beautiful aspects of the the American culture and customs uh, we were around, and then uh, both the fun, cultural, spiritual, family tradition-based customs, but also the work ethic that you often hear and see associated with South Asians, very focused on, again, academics from a young age, hard work, discipline. Uh, These were things that were were drilled into us uh, with an overriding point of all we had to do was worry about school through whatever level of school we wanted to go to. My dad's premise was always, you study hard, work hard in school, we'll take care of everything else. You don't have to worry about working when you're younger. Uh, We'll give you a a reasonable allowance uh, if you want to go on. College and grad school. We also want to support you in that. So it was an incredible uh, circumstance that they afforded us.
0: And what was your dad's story? What, how did he uh, come to America and how did that all happen? Was that a difficult time for him? Do you know much about that?
1: Yeah, uh, this, is, this is a huge part of who I am and uh, how I think about life today. It was a, a tough circumstance for my dad to come here because he was the first to come here in his whole family. He had nine or 10 siblings. He lost his father at a fairly young age. He was, I believe, in his young 20s or late teens, and um, helping support his family emotionally, structurally, financially in India, but his family was very supportive of him coming here to build a different life for himself. And then he ended up facilitating the process for many of his siblings. who who followed to the states after that. And it was pretty tough at first from everything he described to me, again, on the areas I talked about of just assimilating from a language standpoint, a a cultural standpoint, different type of work, and uh, just day-to-day, you name it. Whether it was climate or moving to New York, dealing with a New York winter for the first time was (laughs) pretty jarring for him coming from India. But... um,
0: I guess English wasn't so – English is pretty prevalent in India now, but it probably back then was not so prevalent. That's exactly
1: right. And so uh, I think they learned it, but uh, just um, coming here and uh, it's different to work and be fluent in it. Um, I think the overriding point, though, for him and something he shared with me and then he did a beautiful thing about is he felt uh, a level of loneliness and homesickness around just being in this new place and, and not having some of the things that they had before. And a lot of his peers felt the same way, right? But this is not the situation now where, again, you have huge um, immigrant diaspora spread across the, the states from XYZ country. You can move there and be very much immersed in your food and culture and all of that. These, this didn't exist at the time. And so being the enterprising, dynamic individual that he was, he started a radio show. He loved music. He loved poetry. He loved uh, speaking. He was a natural public speaker, a complete natural on the mic. And so he had the the thought, and I really to this day don't know where it came from, but uh, the beautiful thought to start his own radio show. So every Saturday at 10 a.m., he would uh, go to a studio about 25 minutes away from our home and record an hour-long radio show playing various classical Bollywood spiritual songs from india interspersed his own monologue and connection to it very much curating uh, a set of songs for an hour and did it for himself first and foremost and ended up building this incredible community of people who literally waited every week for 10 a.m on saturday so they could transport themselves back home through his show wow an amazing thing
0: that's so cool and how much was uh, religion a part of your upbringing
1: not a huge part to be honest We were raised Hindu. Both my parents were Hindu. But Hinduism, more than anything, is a way of living life from everything I've read and studied about it in terms of what you do on a day-to-day basis. There's no strict do this, don't do that. Devout Hindus do follow certain dietary guidelines, certain other parameters, but not on the same level of some of the other predominant religions in the world judaism christianity islam etc so it was more part of things i think on a uh, cultural and community level we would go to our our local temple for big indian uh, spiritual holidays or festivals we would go from time to time to the the weekly prayer uh, but it was never a um, overwhelming or or predominant part of things more just uh, something to share in and and build community around that was amazing yeah I, i loved it for me the opportunity just to understand it, and imbibe uh, the aspects of it that um, really resonated with me. And are you and your dad still close today? Uh, he unfortunately passed away uh, oh, when sorry. I was um, 18. Appreciate it. Uh, so that is a, a huge part of my story. I was uh, 18 years old freshman uh, in college, and he was uh, 55 years old, so all too young. A lot of my path is honoring his legacy and the amazing work he did to build this life for us. But on a very real level, uh, lamenting that I don't get to have conversations like this with him. And I was just coming into my own as an adult at that stage of my life. And so even some of the questions you've already asked me, uh, what was it like for you to come here? And, uh, you know, why did you do this radio show? Or how did you think about coming here in the first place? I would give anything to be able to converse with him about. um, But such is life.
0: And so where where were you at at that moment? So you, you were 18 you left high school
1: yeah so uh, his uh, backstory got more complicated right around the time I was born actually so a few months before I was born he was very oddly and uh, unfortunately diagnosed with complete kidney failure and one of the quirks of the human body is we have two kidneys but we only need one of them to survive for some reason both of his gave out and despite a couple of high-potential transplants that ended up working for a short period of time. Nothing ever uh, stuck for him, and he was on uh, the procedure you have to be on if you have functioned kidneys, which is called dialysis, mm. for um, a huge chunk of his life. I think he was in his mid-30s, uh, mid to late 30s when he was uh, diagnosed with this out of the blue. And most people last on dialysis for two to three years because it is an uh, extremely taxing Procedure on your body. You know, every uh, three or four days, you would go in and have all your blood drained and cleaned and put back in you. Uh, and it takes a huge toll on your other organs. And so the, the human body just typically can't handle it for that long. Um, he lasted uh, over 15 years uh, on dialysis while working, with wow. him, uh, supporting our family and putting three kids um, through through college. So. A level of strength that you know, if I have a, a tiny fraction of, I'm going to be just fine in life. Uh, it is mind-boggling to me as an adult now um, how he did all those things. Um, but he, he got to a place where he was doing this and we didn't really know the difference or we didn't appreciate how uh, much he was dealing with and how ill he was during that period of time because he normalized everything in a way that I immensely appreciate and love him for. But in hindsight, wish he had been able to open up to us a little bit more because I can only imagine the physical and emotional pain he was carrying around it. And so what happened in the end, he numerous surgeries over the years for different complications that arose as a result of this, and one of the things that uh, came about was he had a, uh, a faulty heart valve that he went in for surgery for, which is a fairly serious surgery, but being who he was and what we've been conditioned to, he was treating it in a very routine manner, and so we all did as well. Um, and he went in for that surgery. The doctors opened him up to replace his, replace his heart valve, and his body just gave out, and he didn't make it out of that. So there's was a situation where it was a complete blindsiding, devastating shock to um, all of us and his family But talking to the doctors, it was a situation where they said, hey, he was 55 years old. His body was probably 30 years older than that, given what he had been through. Um, I was in my second semester at UC Berkeley. uh, So I just started college, was about 45 minutes away from home. But uh, my life turned upside down uh, as a result because the the shock combined with that place you are in life, where I was just on my own for the first time and be a very formative time of your life thinking about, Uh, What you want to study, and you're establishing yourself as an independent adult and meeting people in very different contexts. So it was a tumultuous time, but uh, ended up being that college experience ended up being four of the toughest years of my life and four of the most incredible, rewarding years as well.
0: I imagine there's a a portion of, you know, when you've got two sisters, your mom, then you and your dad were probably a team. (laughs) So you, you kind of lose that male. Companionship as well Absolutely. in your family
1: and quite frankly I was just coming to the place in my life where I wanted it or was going to need it more you realize this hindsight uh, just as you know, you're establishing yourself as your as a male in uh, the world and in society and all the things that come with that um, meeting a partner the norms around it uh, you know thinking about what you want to do how you want to do it etc So it was one of those things where I didn't even appreciate the time, how much I was going to miss. And then you realize that over the, uh, you know, for me the last 16, 17 years, uh, different moments in time.
0: And so how did you initially respond to it? Was it just anger? Was it sadness? How did it go after that?
1: Sadness combined with shock, combined with uh, some numbness. uh, I did what uh, I think... My Dad would have done, or, or certainly what I inherited from him, uh, which was I just put my head down and kept going, not in a way where I was uh, oblivious to what had just happened or I was avoiding it or uh, pretending like nothing had happened. I was very in tune with my feelings and sharing that with friends, family around me, uh, and you know sitting with the the loss on a level, but um, where I could have thought about taking a semester off, taking some time away from school. Uh, and all those things would have been perfectly rational and reasonable things to do. I decided to finish out my semester as it was and then just see how I felt in the summer and going forward. And I ended up, I think, taking one of the biggest course. I had one of the biggest course loads already that semester, and I kept all the classes. And I'm pretty sure that was uh, the best I performed throughout all of college. Hmm. I just went into this zone, um, I think maybe to honor him, maybe just because I was laser focused in a way. um, And uh, in the near term did that on a broader level, I um, ended up engaging in different forms of community at Berkeley. So UC Berkeley is an incredible institution, uh, but it's a public institution. And for undergraduate students, it can be a big, lonely, overwhelming place. If you don't carve out your own niche or develop a community around people, things, other interests. And um, I picked a few things that I was connected to and and sort of built community around that in addition to the the friends I met in a uh, way of some balancing mechanism from the universe. It took my uh, my dad at uh, that stage of my life, but uh, it also gave me my uh, future incredible partner. And I met my future wife my first year of college as well, Millie is her name. And so that was a big part of my experience as well, of having someone in my corner that, uh, for reasons that I still don't quite get, she just got me, she understood, we connected on a deeper mental, emotional uh, level. And it was confusing because she had never experienced anything like that in her own life. And so for whatever reason, could empathize and and sympathize and connect. So uh, the combination of her plus the community I built Uh, there plus the the friendships i developed were uh, how i managed i think to thrive and really look back fondly uh, at that time i still go back to uh, that campus and feel like it's a true happy place in my life
0: Um, and what were you focusing your studies on what was the community that you really developed for yourself
1: i was focusing my studies on two different exciting disciplines one um Business and finance, uh, and the other sociology. I was on a business track. Uh, you apply into the business school for a two year undergraduate program, your first year of uh, university. And I'd gotten into that and was excited to move forward with it. But I took a sociology class early on in college and uh, absolutely fell in love. Uh, it again connects to the work I do now just uh, an intense, deep, genuine fascination with people. And it allowed me to cultivate my ability to critically read and write. And it was just a fantastic combination for me to to do those two things together. Um, So that's what I was doing academically. From a community standpoint, I got involved with the Alumni Association um, at Berkeley, where I just met a lot of different uh, leaders from different walks of life. And then the other commitment, uh, which was a huge one for me, but an incredible one that gave me some lifelong friends, was um, with the athletic department where I worked uh, as a student manager for the uh, men's basketball team. And this was a full-time commitment, uh, essentially, 30, 40 hours a week, where the duties included everything from menial aspects of setting up and cleaning up after practice to helping on the administrative side for the team when they travel to um, everything in between. Right? So there was business aspects of it. Too. There were some strategic aspects of it. There were some very administrative, manual labor aspects to it. But you had 15 players, five coaches, and then a small staff of us managers of four or five people. And these folks became a second family to me. Um, and that was just a, a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, a a place of great support and uh, being something I did for all four years of my experience in uh, college.
0: Those of us from small countries, explain um, college basketball. Uh,
1: Absolutely. It's a great question. So college
0: basketball in uh, the States
1: is essentially a professional uh, level of of sport. College basketball and college football are the two sports that um, are college or amateur in name only. They are huge revenue generating, high profile, uh, very uh, prominent parts of um, the college experience at uh, a lot of universities here. And so, um, you know, if you're involved with the basketball or football program, uh, this being American football, you are uh, doing a lot. These teams travel all over the country to play other schools. There's a, a big tournament in basketball every March. Uh, it's known here as March Madness, where it's a 64 team bracket uh, where teams are seated and and play each other from all over the country uh, with one eventual champion. So, um, again, college basketball and college football, uh, for all intent purposes, can be treated like uh, the NBA or the NFL uh, or Major League Baseball, NHL, all the professional sports here, just in terms of the amount of money that's involved and uh, the attention and focus. And on a collegial level, you end up seeing a level of connection. And uh, camaraderie that's uh, even deeper um, than some of the professional affiliations people will have with their sports teams, where again it's a formative part of the undergraduate experience a lot of universities, so people have lifelong memories around going to certain games or the experiences um, you know of that uh, whether it's American football or basketball
0: and, and your role in the team what, what was your main role was it like a management type role? Yeah,
1: so it was literally everything from um, you know, manual labor to administrative tasks to business management to, um, you know, helping whatever was needed between the coaching staff and a small you know, full-time admin staff and the needs of the players. So it was a wide-ranging role. I learned to be extremely resourceful, you know, self-sufficient and, uh, and independent in a, a real way that I carry forward with me professionally uh, even now. Uh, just a kind of mentality early on of get stuff done. I had, there was weird, uh, unusual tasks that came our way of, hey, we need to get this done by, you know, this date. I'm not really sure how to do it. Go figure it out. And uh, we were left on our own to do that. But uh, again, it developed a, an ability inside myself to just be um, resourceful, take initiative and, and think creatively when you're trying to solve a problem.
0: And I'm guessing, like when you're studying business and finance and sociology over here, this to me seems like the perfect place to go and play out what you're learning.
1: Yeah, it's a great connection. It's actually one I've uh, I've never made myself, but it it combines elements of both, right? Because on a certain level, we're doing a lot of work with the players. You're getting to know them well, and there's a sociological element of that because um, everyone—the coaches, the the administrative staff, the the student managers. And then the players are coming from very different backgrounds, right? There are different parts of the country and world in some cases, uh, different upbringings, different cultures, religions, et cetera. And so the, the sociological element of that played involved well just me genuinely loving getting to know everyone and developing lifelong uh, relationships. And then the business strategy, finance side of things is uh, were skills I was using in real time um, with aspects of this job.
0: It's just like, Coming from a, a small country, it's just extraordinary to me, you know, the, the opportunities at an a institution like Berkeley. Absolutely. No, it, it's just mind-blowing. It, um,
1: it was such an incredible opportunity that, you know, I, I grew into a leadership role um, later on in college, and the team, as a result, ended up offering me um, a partial scholarship uh, for the work I was doing. Uh, wow. so it went to a level that I could never have imagined when I signed up to yeah. do this, I was just a huge sports fan and thought this would be something fun and interesting. And on a personal emotional level, it was an incredible source of community for me during a very tough time, uh, and gave me an amazing grounding. And then, um, you know, logistically and financially it ended up being a, a huge, um, benefit as well. So, uh, formative experience to, uh, uh to say the least.
0: Was it, I think I know the answer to this question, but was it a competitive environment? 100%.
1: Very competitive environment. Again, at, at the level of college basketball, co- college football, university level, division one is the, the term here. There's multiple divisions and two, three, four, and you have decreasing levels of intense competition. They're all extremely competitive, but division one is the highest level. And uh, you're dealing again with, lots of interest revenue coaches are compensated extremely well these players end up going to professional sports nba nfl etc so it's a very competitive environment and you are surrounded by that early and it's easy generally in sports whether you're following it or you're playing it to lose sight of the fact that you're involved with a game right because people can very easily treat these things as life or death matters or or get a little wrapped up in it and um it was also it was helpful for me because, yes, it was a very competitive environment, but I also had a, a very difficult, tragic life perspective that grounded me in a way to say, you know what, uh, none of this stuff really matters in, in that context. Uh, yes, we're going to do everything we can to win this game or prepare well for this game, but there are broader things in life that carry more weight, and, and that was something that I was able to help, hold in uh, equilibrium fairly well.
0: And so you, did you have some friends now that are in the NBA? I have
1: some uh, friends who were in the NBA, uh, players who were there when I was uh, in school, and then they had uh, short careers in in the NBA, which was really exciting to to see for them. Yeah, that's uh, cool. And uh, and others who've gone on to play internationally or just uh, gone on to different careers after that.
0: So, what's your relationship with basketball now? Like it's a, a long time ago.
1: Yeah. So now, I guess I'm a huge, huge fan. My uh, childhood team is the Golden State Warriors, and they are on the verge of potentially winning another championship. They are up 3-1 in a seven-game series with Game 5 tomorrow night. It's a sport I follow intensely. That team, uh, the Golden State Warriors, was terrible for my entire adult life, child and adult <laughs> life, and like five years ago. So uh, we've enjoyed, we, meaning me and my, my friends from the Bay Area, have enjoyed the renaissance um, so I, I follow it religiously, I, I play occasionally, but uh, generally speaking, a huge sports fan. Uh, sports as a parable for life and um, the lessons you can take from it, the perspectives you can gain from it, uh, I'm fascinated by and it's just a lot of fun. Again, the community build, uh, the, the shared interests, I love it.
0: The equivalent in New Zealand is rugby. Yes, yeah, of course. Rugby is just so we live and breathe it. And cricket, I suppose, that's probably the the New Zealand Indian connection. There. Yeah,
1: hundred percent. I know friends from there who, who follow both on a deep level.
0: So where does it lead after university? What, what, what career path do you choose and what happens from there?
1: Yeah. So this was a, an interesting juncture for me because the, the program there, it's a business school. So uh, most people go through it are getting their MBA, but they have an undergraduate uh, two year program, as I mentioned, for your last two years of school which is essentially an MBA without the work experience. And that program funnels people into typically three industries, uh, investment banking, management consulting, and financial accounting. Those three industries for different reasons just didn't appeal to me very much. Uh, they were all very interesting lucrative, uh, but the set path, understood ceiling aspect of things just didn't resonate with me. So I didn't pursue any of those in earnest. Uh, I found myself interested in business and finance and investing, generally speaking, but uh, didn't know where I wanted to take that exactly. Uh, and here's where I engaged for the first time, uh, first of many times, uh, with my broader community that had uh, developed around me. So uh, the alumni I had met through working with the Alumni Association, Uh, through the basketball program, et cetera, and just started talking to people about their own careers, what they'd done, how they'd done it, et cetera, and found myself with a really interesting, unexpected opportunity to join a small investment firm uh, where I got connected uh, because one of the alums I got to know and who's an extremely good friend of mine to this day, his best friend from growing up had started a firm several years before that, And my friend said, hey, they're looking to to add to their team, you might be able to help them out with certain things. It was specifically in the fund of hedge fund space. So a uh, very esoteric for most aspect of the financial world, uh, but a, a firm that essentially puts together portfolios of hedge funds for someone to invest in. So instead of you investing in one particular fund and dealing with the diligence required and then the associated risk of having your investment in just one fund, you can come invest with this firm that has um, a fund of 30 different funds. So you're diversified across that. And this firm is going to do all the diligence and risk monitoring for you. So that was a specific space that this firm operated in, and I approached the opportunity with a lot of excitement because it was an eight-person firm that uh, there was an opportunity to do a lot of different things. The role that they had available was on the operations and investor relations side of the business, not on the investment side of the business. Everyone on the investment team had come from a traditional investment banking training program for a few years and then came into a role like this, which is the typical path for uh, folks in the finance world. And they presented this opportunity to me, which I was personally excited about because I saw it as a chance to just learn about the business and you know, come into an opportunity again where there wasn't a set path or a set ceiling. But interestingly, they were hesitant after the first set of conversations because they felt like I was going to get bored in six months and leave. And this is where I drew upon my grounded perspective of what I had experienced in my own life, as well as some of the things I did um, in my job as a student manager for the basketball team, where no task was below me, right? I was a well-performing student at a great university, but I was also wiping water off the floor at the end of practice and, you know, appreciating um, the, the value in doing my small part as a, uh, a team member in my own way. And so I essentially said to them, listen, I'll come in here and do whatever you want me to do. I'll water your plants, I'll I'll clean the the dishwasher, I'll do these administrative tasks, Um, let me come in and prove myself and establish my credibility and ability to learn and work ethic. And if I've done that a year from now, give me the opportunity to learn about the investment side of this business. Without having to go back and do this painful, unappealing training path program at uh, you know a big investment bank where you are going to work ninety hours a week and generally have a miserable life for two years, and they said that's a fair deal why don't let's do that um, and so we did that, and things worked out really well. I, I came in there and stayed true to my word and tried to do everything under the sun just to be a great team player and establish enough credibility where Actually, a little less than a year in, they approached me to say, hey, you've uh, proven yourself and we would love to have you transition on to the investment side of the business. And uh, they allowed me to do that where uh, I I went to work for another three years or so uh, and learned a ton, was extremely well treated, compensated well. I was living and working in San Francisco, pretty fantastic circumstance as someone just graduating from college. Uh, this was the early to mid 2000s, so the economy was in good shape. This particular industry was doing extremely well, and it was as good of an experience as I could have asked for, uh, coming straight out of uh, university.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Is it? Uh, my my sense is that industry is, you know, very how would you describe it? Very intense, very masculine, very. Um, When it all costs, type of industry, is that a fear?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, 100%. So, uh, the fascinating part about this dynamic was twofold. One, most of the people who will start a hedge fund on their own are extremely brilliant investors and risk takers and market followers. And these are people who leave extremely well paying jobs, sometimes paying them in the millions of dollars a year at the big bank or financial institution they work at to start their own fund because they think and know that they're that good for the prospect of making tens of millions of dollars right so you're talking about ego on a pretty high level right yeah. of uh, being able to um, carry that forward and uh, you're encountering it on a really visceral sense uh, you know, directly and talking to them the role I was in uh, from an investment standpoint was uh, the first layer of due diligence which is you do some research on a potential fund and then you go sit down and you meet with them and at age 24 uh, or so i was sitting down across the table from you know these titans of, of finance who again had left these absurd incredible seven paying seven figure uh, paying jobs to go make eight or nine figures and I, in an amazing way, got to pick their brain and ask them whatever I wanted because I was in the position of being the potential investor or representing a potential investor, right? They had to convince me that they were at a certain level that they should talk to my boss for further diligence, (laughs) which was completely backwards, right? Like it just made no sense at all, but I relished it because it was an incredible opportunity for me to learn. But to your uh, direct question, absolutely. It was something where I encountered – very intense levels of ego and masculinity, and generally the world of finance is dominated by that. And so I saw it um, early on, and it was interesting for me because um, you know, having two older sisters conditions you in a certain way. And uh, I've always been a, a very sort of confident and um, you know, certainly not without ego male. But um, when you you grow up in a household of uh, females, it gets blunted to a certain point and you just have an appreciation for, uh, things that may not be traditionally masculine or associated with the, the, the stereotypical definition of the word. Um, and so it was an interesting experience for me to, to feel that in a, a very masculine dominated egocentric field, but I was grounded enough and, and centered enough around the experiences I had that, um, again, going back to my college experience, my sociology lens and, uh, framework came into place of just witnessing this and taking it in, uh, as opposed to being deeply affected by it.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. I, 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 I don't know that much about the industry, but I, I sense there's a, a, you know, cause it's incredibly alluring, right. Especially to a young man, uh, in, intelligent and, you know, high performer. This is, this is the, the place that you want to play your game. A great place to go and use your skills. But I guess there's
1: a, a dark side to it, I'm guessing? Yeah, a dark side in the context of, again, uh, you know, the, the role of ego or masculinity or just lack of self awareness that I think you, you often find in, in the finance world can be a, a difficult set of things to contend with. Uh, at the time, again, early to mid 2000s, it was an incredibly lucrative field. It still is. But this was before the financial crisis, and so it was, mm. you know there, there wasn't a recent scar of things going really badly. Right? There was the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s with some tech companies, but that wasn't a massive economic event. Uh, it wasn't until 2008 where people had their lives and jobs and worlds turned upside down, and uh, there was a bit of a reckoning around, hey, is, is all this worth it, or um, how should I be thinking about you know, what really matters to me um, when you're fundamentally in a space where there's a number next to your name, that number being how much money you've generated or how much money you've made, uh, you can get into a very warped cycle in terms of how you think about life and what's important to you and what matters because uh, it's easier to let go of uh, the answers to the questions and just keep looking at the number next to your name uh, when in reality there is always, always, always in life going to be someone who has a higher number next to their name. So you're essentially set up to be
0: Can never be enough. Yeah, ever. So what happens from here? You you enjoyed that career. You got some amazing opportunities. Yeah.
1: So, uh, this is where the first, uh, understanding of the the subconscious appreciation of being born on third base and, you know, um, having a, a winning lottery ticket to life from the universe, uh, came into play where I was in my mid twenties. I had a great life, great job, uh, a job that Most people I don't think would voluntarily leave, but there was this uh, subconscious nagging sense of I think I can do more. I think I can learn more Um, because I plateaued a little bit at this organization. Again, it was a small organization, and to some degree your growth was predicated on other people leaving, which because it was such an amazing place to be, people weren't inclined to do that. Um, Mm. And so – there was that professional element uh, for me and personal element of saying uh, there's more I want to do. There's more I want to learn and grow that's beyond just um, making uh, a great salary and um, having the, the prestige of working in a place like this. And it was absolutely a uh, prestigious place. I still tell people about in the, the finance world of oh, I started my company at this firm and uh, it's something that folks are impressed by and, and acknowledge. And so I was very cognizant of both those things that you know, this is extremely lucrative space to be in and I was working with a, a genuinely great group of people that uh, felt like a family. Right? It was only 10, 15 of us at the time, but that was uh, one element. The other element uh, on a personal level was my then girlfriend, uh, Millie and future wife after college she had uh, gotten a job in san francisco as well but she had applied to grad school had a, a ton of options to to go to different programs around the country to study uh, public policy but one of those programs was um, out east uh, an incredible program where they fully fund you actually for 2 years for your entire grad school experience because they admit a very small number of people um, have extremely high standards but when they do let folks in they give you that incredible circumstance of being able to graduate without any debt. Uh, so this was one of those opportunities that extremely hard for her to, to pass up, um, although she was willing to, to stay in the Bay Area and then go back to Berkeley, where she had also gotten in. Um, but uh, I was excited for her to go out there and on a personal level, wanting more professional challenge. And also having grown up in this 45 mile radius from Silicon Valley to Berkeley to San Francisco, it is one of the best 45-mile radii in the world, <laughs> without a doubt. Um spoiled to, to, you know, to have that experience for most of my life. But I was just itching to see and to do something new. And um, the prospect of being able to come out to the East Coast uh, for what I thought would be a couple of years was really compelling to me. So uh, this was early in 2008 that I made this uh, exciting, um, soon-to-be terrifying decision. Uh, where I left this job on my own volition and moved out to um, New York and um, thought, you know, be here for a couple of years while uh, Millie goes through this grad program and then we'll make our way back to uh, the West Coast or see what happens. Um, but I did anticipate the world falling apart as we know it, especially as it related to finance. I had a few different things lined up in the final stages I uh, signed a lease here over the summer and literally had uh, two or three weeks of final round interviews that were set to begin on the same day in September of 2008 that Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy, which was one of the uh, seminal points in the crisis that precipitated um, the madness of that fall. And so here I was having signed a lease in New York City, um, had a little bit of a cushion of money I had saved in case it it didn't happen immediately, but certainly not anticipating uh, the the downfall of the financial system as we knew it, which was an interesting experience to say the least, where I came out here and I was going into interviews with firms and um, literally sitting down with people who were 30 years older than me. And at the end of a really good conversation, them saying, listen, there there could be a great fit for you here. But I quite honestly don't know if our firm is going to exist tomorrow. What's going to happen next week? And on the way out of these uh, interviews, uh, they would stop me and say, hey, if uh, if you see anything I should be thinking about or exploring myself in your exploration, let me know. And my mental response was, you are 30 years older than me. How bad is this out there? If you know, you're thinking about things in, in that context. So uh, it was pretty jarring and, and scary. But in a uh, unexpected way, I was certainly worried and concerned about you know, what was going to happen to our financial system and certainly on a selfish level where I was going to work. But I was just as taken if not more by what had just happened, why, how, and how we were going to prevent it from happening again. I was going back and forth to the grad program uh, on the campus that uh, Millie was attending to listen to lectures from economists and uh, different folks talk about the state of affairs in real time, really just gripped by that. I'd always had an interest in politics and the policy world, but it's zoomed to a very different level in in this scary time in the fall of 2008. Um, In the midst of all that, I was looking for jobs and being diligent. Around that and uh, very fortunately in the throes of the crisis in November of 2008, I landed a job with an extremely reputable investment firm here in New York that um, I felt extremely fortunate to connect with and started uh, right away um, and had a a fantastic setup there. I was doing something very similar to what I was doing before, so uh, it was an easy transition for me and I just had a great position in a circumstance where a ton of really smart, accomplished people all around me were unemployed. And, you know, I, I felt very lucky to to have that. But interestingly for myself, this fascination with what happened, how, when, where, what um, wasn't going away. It's all I wanted to think about and talk about as I sat down with these hedge fund managers, everything in a macroeconomic context and a broader Political context, and so after about a year, year and a half, working there, I realized that this wasn't a, a passing interest of mine, or, or a scratch that could just be itched away. It was something I wanted to engage in deeper. And again, this was the second instance of the subconscious pushing myself to to do more, to learn more, um, coming to to bear. And I decided to leave that firm and go back. Uh, to graduate school myself uh, to get a two-year graduate degree in international finance and economic policy, thinking that I was going to either go work for the government, the central bank, or something related to uh, the federal government, or I was going to go to a macroeconomic research or investment firm to think about and uh, be immersed in these issues on that level. So that's uh, the path I took from there.
0: Yeah, interesting. And so what did you learn? What did you learn about the crash? What what came out of all the research and the study?
1: Yeah, so I had an incredible experience. I went to a program here in New York City, a full-time two-year program. They have a, a huge international student body, so I met um, amazing people from all over the world, including a, a very good friend of mine who uh, is from New Zealand. So uh, I have to make it down there one of these days to absolutely uh, to visit him and see the the, the beautiful aspects I've heard about the, uh, your country. Um, but I learned a lot around what we had done, mortgage industry in the U.S. is what was the, the main culprit and how we had gotten to that point from a regulatory standpoint, from a, 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 quite frankly a sociological standpoint, where uh, in the U.S. especially, the, uh, um, the American dream has been inextricably linked to owning a home. And this doesn't exist in uh, other developed parts of the world where home ownership is uh, a box you have to check in order to say I'm a successful adult or professional.
0: Um, yeah, it is a big thing in New Zealand. This is, um, yeah, this is a big part of
1: New Zealand culture. It is. Yeah. Interesting. So um, it, it certainly is here in the States, but I, I know there's a lot of places around the world where it is not. Um, and I think it went to a level here in the States where you know people were incentivized and pushed to buy a home in a lot of cases where they, they shouldn't. Right. That's a very oversimplified uh, explanation for the mortgage yeah. crisis. But you had people being given loans that were predicated on housing prices going up you know, indefinitely until the end of time, which was great yeah. until it wasn't. And so, um, yeah, I learned a lot about things from a regulatory standpoint, from a financial standpoint and an incentive standpoint. Um, ended up working in uh, different uh, government roles while I was in this program during the summer and during uh, both years of my program, which was fantastic, learned a lot, did a lot uh, with that. But uh, when I graduated, there was a um, unexpected opportunity that came up in the world of financial technology startups. This was a, a firm based in Silicon Valley that some friends of mine had started, and uh, they make portfolio management software for independent wealth advisory firms. They approached me with the opportunity to start and build the New York office for this firm that was based in California, uh, which was an exciting but a little bit unexpected, out-of-the-blue opportunity for me.
0: And a new world for you, right? It was a completely you know, you new world for me. Bigger organizations. A hundred
1: percent. But uh, again, going back to my theme of pushing myself to, to think about more, to do more, um, I quickly appreciated the fact that I'd always thought about the world of finance. In two ways. Uh, one, which you are sitting in a seat as a trader, analyst, investment manager, broker, et cetera. And two, you are a regulator, a policymaker. Quickly contextualized that a third way was emerging, which was to look at finance through the prism of technology, which was fascinating for me because, in my experience working in the financial world, technology had always been viewed as an afterthought, a cost center necessary evil never as a tool of differentiation and transparency and proactive growth but that was very much changing in real time and so it was exciting for me to think about being part of that which is why i ultimately decided to take this opportunity that uh, realization coupled with the excitement around building a very different skill set in the role i was going to be in so i uh, excitedly took a role to functionally I was helping sell and implement the software to the company's clients and culturally and operationally I was helping establish a presence here for this 40 person company where the New York office was out of sight out of mind it's going back and forth to California a bunch I learned a lot about second office presence um, aspects of what you should do and how you should do it developing team community connection around that um, which was really difficult but Um, incredible experience for me
0: yeah what a a diverse experience and where does it all lead where where are you at today so all this incredible knowledge yeah so
1: so that led to a place where two and a half years later uh, I had done a lot the company had grown a lot uh, but I one was just a little worn out from the back and forth, the travel, just being in a startup environment can be pretty overwhelming early on.: And the company had evolved uh, in, in different ways. My role had changed, and it just didn't feel like a great fit anymore. And so I started to think about what was next, uh, and this is what ultimately launched me into the, the very different space I'm in today, um, where I was contextualizing it in the context of triangulating between what have I done before, who do I know and what have I studied? And a lot of people will do that on the surface and often find a great opportunity because they've had some great experiences. They went to a great school they know some very connected, helpful people. But just as often you're going to wake up three months later with a different business card, paycheck and title and say, this is fundamentally the same thing uh, because I didn't address the root of what I want to do differently. And I started thinking long and hard about uh, how you mitigate that possibility of, uh, disappointment, uh, feeling like I'm I'm back in the same place. Um, And what I realized I needed to do was for the first time in my life, uh, hit pause and go inward to think about who I was, where I came from, what was important to me, what skills I wanted to use, how I wanted to spend my time. Um, But I realized I needed to do that in some white space. Uh, And I needed to wrap up with the job I was in and take some time to spend time alone with my own thoughts and this process without knowing what was next, which was extremely contradictory to my type, a OCD self. Uh, it was something that I had never contemplated doing before. Um, but I did it and, uh, it was the most incredible thing and the most difficult thing I've ever done. Um, you know,
0: people think you're crazy. People absolutely
1: thought I was crazy and, and questioned me on, on many different levels. Um, but How old were you at that point? I was 31, and um, I ended up creating a, a structure and process uh, and framework around it that uh, became the foundation of the, uh, the coaching pro- practice that I started uh, a few years later. So it was a, a seminal decision for me on many different levels. Um, I needed one leg of the journey um, after that, before I got to the place of starting my own coaching business, uh, where I came to the realization that I I wanted to do this and I had a great idea and foundation for doing it. But quite frankly, I was too scared to make this big of a leap into something so new and different. And so I decided to go work at another um, financial technology-focused startup company here in New York um, while doing this on the side. But after about a year there was a clear indication internally that this is all I wanted to think and talk about and uh, i couldn't not do it so i made the exciting uh, slightly overwhelming decision to uh, to start my own business at the beginning of 2016 and that's where i am now
0: awesome so how long did you have off how long
1: that ended up being take- uh, about 7 months that i took um, off it was a, a completely open ended circumstance for me you know when i first left the job i had a lot of people who defaulted to the questions of you know what's your timeline how long are you giving yourself uh and (laughs) then when i explained the open-ended process of you know what for once i want to see what happens from an organic bottoms up perspective and just go about this a different way and see where it leads um the first reaction from people was you know that sounds intellectually uh fascinating and really admirable but when are you getting a job? And so, uh, it was for me to see that evolve quickly to, um, people then coming back to me and, um, uh, asking shortly thereafter if they could, um, work with me in the structure process and framework and have me coach them through it. Because I, I think it started to set in as I stayed in the space and just, went on my own timeline to uncover things in the way I needed to
0: having this conversation with a friend yesterday about, you know, where when you realize that you need that space or you realize that, uh, doing the work or the life that you're in, is not fulfilling you in some way. Do you need an indication of the path that you want to take and then go all in and do it? Or do you need to do what you do? You know, not really have an indication of where you want to go. Just take the leap, uh, cuddle ties, and just hope that it works out. Hope that a direction emerges from that. Uh, absolutely.
1: This is a fundamental, sound, difficult question to ask. I firmly believe that if you can approach the ladder, it's uh, a path that can lead to serendipity and possibility on a, a great level. I talk to folks uh, in a very real way around uh the possibilities of this to say hey if you're approaching hitting pause and going into your own personal wind- wilderness to think about what's next in an open end where we don't know what the next step is there are three boxes you need to be able to check uh you know pointedly to talk about this decision point that you just highlighted you know to go down the path of a or b a being I I know what's next and I'm going to orchestrate it in this way, or B saying, I don't know, but I need to take this time. Uh, If you're going to do B, you need to first figure out your uh, financial runway, which quite frankly is the easiest of the three things I'm going to mention because it's just math, right? At what point are you going to become distracted, overwhelmed, anxious by that and you just back into it, right? Um, The second point is uh, a tougher one and that is can you deal with unstructured time or is that going to distract and uh, overwhelm you at the start uh and
0: then the third question most people have never dealt with that no, realistically Absolutely. most people have worked for a company their whole life and never had to deal with an unstructured environment
1: no or the, the whole prospect of i'm going to get up every day and be able to ask myself what do you want to do today How am going to spend your time mm-hmm. right which is an Scary. incredibly liberating and amazing question but it Scares the crap out of most people. Uh, sure. The third point that you need to verify for yourself is um, understanding how you're going to deal with the um, external and internal soundtrack of expectation, with the internal one being sometimes a louder and more difficult one to contend with, right? Uh, are you going to wake up every other day and ask yourself, Sineel, what are you doing? When are you going to figure this out? What's your path? And you're certainly going to get it externally, right? I had a lot of people, as I mentioned, say, this is great. I totally respect. It. I appreciate everything you're doing. But uh, what's the end date when you're getting a job? Or uh, are you sure this is not going to look bad on your resume? Are you sure you're, you're okay with the open-ended nature of this? You have a lot of people who are going to project their own anxiety and uh, confusion and fear on you from an external standpoint. But the internal can be just as hard. So whenever people ask me that question, I say, Listen, in um, an ideal world, path B is a better one to take because, again, of the possibility and the excitement and growth that comes of it. But I'm a very realistic, practical person, and uh, I know that it's really hard for someone to check all three of the boxes I just mentioned. Uh, and It took me a while to get comfortable with all three of those myself. It wasn't an overnight decision of, oh, yeah, I'm going to leave this and not know what's next and go on, on my own way um, and I don't need to worry about anything.
0: I, did you have any support? Like, did you have someone, you know, that was guiding you through this? Or did you just go, no, I made the decision, I'll figure this out myself?
1: It was more of the latter. Uh, I ended up building in support uh, for myself, or coming across people. Um, after the fact, uh, I worked with a coach myself uh, for the first time. Um, as I went into that process for, uh, for part of the time I was off, um, I developed a, a community of like-minded folks that I ended up Sharing and engaging with on deeper levels, but at the outset of it, it was very much uh, me on my own
0: and so you develop a framework over the seven months?
1: yeah, I actually developed a framework at the very beginning uh, because again my my type A operational business mind kind of thinks and questions and frameworks and um, different sets of analyses, and so I, I developed that on the on the front end, but then I was faced with the question of. This is fantastic, but how do you answer these questions for yourself? There's no uh, you know, book you read that gives you all of the fill in the blanks here. Right? There's nothing I can mm. Google that's going to uncover this for me. And that's what I when I realized that I had to um, fundamentally get comfortable with spending time alone with my own thoughts, something I'd never done. And uh, more so, I had to, for the first time in my life, balance the concept of doing with the concept of being. I lived my whole life predominantly as a doer. I get things done. I plan things. I think about things. Uh, I had never just appreciated being, whether it was in the form of meditation, whether it was in the form of flowing to whatever you felt like doing on that particular day, um, doing nothing, any of those. Um, and so that was uh, was my challenge to get comfortable with that and balance doing and being uh, and um, and spend some time alone with my own thoughts with different practices around mindfulness that I develop to uh, answer some of these questions for myself.
0: Yeah, I'm really aligned with this. I'm just obsessed with this being and doing uh, relationship at the moment myself. How did you, I know a lot of people that go into this work or go into, like you say, uh, some introspection, introspective analysis that you can get into this state where you are in flow and you are meditating all the time and you are just, you fall in love with just being, which is really beautiful, right? It's a great state to be in and it feels really good, but at some point you have to do, right? Yep. So how do you go about the balance? How do you go about finding the balance between being and doing? Uh, great
1: Difficult question to answer (laughs) on a a personal level. I benefit from being very far on the doer spectrum or I'm a hyper doer, however you want to think about this. Mm. Uh, And so I then and now have to moderate myself towards the middle end of the spectrum and at least thus far, it's never been a struggle for me of being too far on the other end of the spectrum of being a, a hyper beer, for lack of a better word, although right, right, right. Not a word. Um, so that just from my temperament, my upbringing, I think again something I inherited from my dad. The dad was a crazy doer to, to accomplish what he did in fifty-five short years. He was just constantly doing things. Um, so that's my natural inclination. And default point. Uh, and the balance comes about for me of just making sure I'm as much towards the middle of the spectrum as I can be. Um, but uh, on a, at a general level, if someone else were, was grappling with the same question and um, you know, they're somewhere else on the spectrum, there's I'm not sure. Uh, I don't have an answer. and So I'm not sure how you think about it from the work I do now. It's Meeting people wherever they might be on that spectrum and then doing the work accordingly, uh, sort of developing the self-awareness to say, okay, where do you lie? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. is, it, is it harder for you to do things or is it harder for you to be? Um, and then accordingly, let's do our work together. So I think it's a personal yeah, like path. That.
0: And do you find yourself, you know, if you're not careful, you can just end up just doing, doing, doing
1: the biggest, uh, downfall for me from a professional standpoint. Right. And personal standpoint.
0: Uh, so, how do you do it? You, you have some red flags that come up?
1: Yeah. Uh, you in that state. Absolutely. Um, it, it's process I went through during that time period really um, cultivated a feeling of um, appreciation for, you know, for being and uh, the calmness that can come as a result of that. And so now my energy is off. I. And sense things differently, and just feel differently. And when that happens, a recentering process myself of whether it's you know journaling or um, different mindfulness practices, and engage in that. Just to remind myself of the the power and necessity to uh, to be. Um, because it's something where in a really great excited way because of how much I genuinely love the work I do now. Uh, It's not from a scarcity mindset. It's not because I need to accomplish XYZ revenue goal, or um, I need to hit this milestone by that date. It's genuinely as cliche as it might sound. I want to work with everyone who comes my way and is interested in working together. And uh, I want to engage with as many people around this work and space as I can, but that's not logistically life uh, or being compatible, right? So um, <laughs> that's uh, that's my struggle.
0: It's a funny thing I was just thinking about that we, when we think of, uh, or when I think of Indian immigrants, of, of people like yourself, I think of, um, you know, your story of, being brought up with this strong work ethic yep. and working hard and education is everything. But the, the, uh, the paradox is you can't, you know, your, your, um, your homeland in India is the, the birthplace of yoga, yes. the birthplace of the Buddha, this <laughs> incredibly spiritual country that is probably hyper beers is, you know, the term we've created today. Um, but our experience of Indian immigrants is of, of hyper doers kind of a strange paradox, isn't it?
1: Fascinating one to point out uh, that, again, I never contextualized in that way. Um, it's all the more fascinating given the uh, prevalence and popularity uh, in our modern, certainly American culture, but I feel like on a global level of meditation, yoga, uh, general spiritual practices that uh, emanate from that region. Yeah. alongside the fact that you know, much of uh, Silicon Valley is powered by South Asian immigrants. And some of the biggest companies in the world have a presence uh, in India, or some of the best uh, universities on the technical side in the world are uh, located in India. So it is a, an interesting <laughs> paradox that way, for sure. So yeah, that's
0: something, funny that's something in about.
1: it. Absolutely, yeah.
0: So, so who, who do you work with now? Who, who, who's your ideal client? I know you said you want to work with anybody, but yeah. who, who are the people that you're generally attracted to, to your work? So my practice spans
1: uh, both individuals and organizations. On the individual side, I'm working with three categories of people. Uh, first category is people who are in or approaching some sort of transition, typically a professional one, but transitions generally. The second category is executives and directors at uh, small organizations who are facing management and leadership challenges without the resources to address them. And the third category is entrepreneurs who are starting their own business at the very early stages of it and need a right-hand person in that space and dynamic. Um, Those three categories of people I picked because I've occupied the categories myself my whole life uh, at different times. and So there's a visceral connection for me to the experience there completely age and background and industry agnostic. Uh, I love the sort of diversity of uh, the roster I have in place of people of different ages and and coming from different spaces, different disciplines, et cetera. But that's the individual side of my practice. And on the uh, organizational side, working with small companies, uh, typically in the startup space, very similar to the ones I spent um, a decent chunk of my career at where they have – a great product and market fit and funding but struggle with things from a people and organizational standpoint. So just coming in and engaging on that level with them to think about the org structure, people, growth dynamics that a lot of young companies overlook or have a hard time
0: dealing with. So tell me a little bit more about that. So what do you, if you work with a new company like a startup or or a new entrepreneur, what what are the the common themes that you see or the common uh, things that that those people miss or struggle with?
1: So on an organizational structure standpoint, it's um, not appreciating early enough in the life cycle of the company. Two main things. One, the point at which you need to pivot away from hiring what people often call athletes, all around very well-trained diverse set of skills individuals, um, pivoting from that, which are great at an early stage because they can come in and do a bunch of things, obviously, to hiring people for specialized roles with specialized backgrounds. That's something that I think all young companies do too late. And, and the consequence is if you have too many all purpose star athletes at a company, uh, you're going to quickly have a situation where folks are frustrated because They don't know exactly what they own or how to grow or manage their own contribution. Uh, They step on each other's territory or or roles and it becomes a frustrating dynamic for everyone involved. Um, That's one thing I see to be fairly prevalent. The second is the whole idea of org structure to begin with and establishing that where there's an anathema to an org chart or to any layer of hierarchy when in reality after you have I don't know a dozen, fifteen people. You can't have everyone reporting to the CEO, right? It, just, mm. it doesn't work.
0: And so that's what ends up happening: that the founder wants to keep control of everything. And so, as it just grows, you just keep adding people under him.
1: Yeah. It, sometimes if the founder wants to keep control. Sometimes they're just not uh, aware of the pitfalls. Uh, and sometimes there's a uh, extremely negative reaction to anything related to. Hierarchy because they feel like it's a slippery slope to being some bureaucratic, uh, you know, giant company.
0: Everything they tried to get away from
1: when they started. That's exactly right. And, you know, explain to them that there is a middle ground there. And you, in fact, as CEO, are doing yourself and this person a disservice by uh, saying that they ostensibly report to you when you don't have the time, energy, or inclination to support them and guide them in the way they need. And both parties are going to come away from it or off. So those are the two main things I, I typically see at uh, young companies.
0: So you would encourage them like as you start up and you've got two or three athletes, mm-hmm. you know, working from an office, just grinding away trying to get this thing off the ground. That's the time to actually look ahead and go, actually, how do we want this the, the structure of this company to look? From a human standpoint. Absolutely.
1: And then, Think about the stage at which you should start hiring people from specific backgrounds for specialized roles. And There's no cookie cutter standard out of a playbook approach. Oh, when you have X in revenue or when you have Y employees, you should make that shift. It depends on your business. It depends on your history. It depends on the, the people you have around the table. It just requires a conscious, thoughtful conversation to be had proactively when you are mm. uh, when you are growing. Um, so that's how I think about it.
0: Yeah, interesting. So where to, from here for you, how do you see the future looking?
1: This on a very cliched but real level clearly feels like my life's work. It's what I feel I'm meant to be doing. Most yeah. times it doesn't feel like work to me, which is just an incredible feeling I've never had. And I've been in some amazing companies and industries. On a practical level, I could see it taking different forms and paths from this point forward, which one could be I continue to run my own practice and uh, do it in that context. The other could be I decide at some point down the road to go join XYZ Coaching Company and work for them as a full-time coach, just being part of a, a larger organization. Another potential path would be to... Engage with a company that has always brought in independent coaches from an external standpoint and is deciding to build a coaching practice within the firm as they grow and scale. And you and I both have seen some companies already start to do this and taking your practice or your um, abilities to a, a circumstance like that. Uh, And then the last path I thought of, and and there could be other ones, but these are the four that come to my mind immediately, would be forming some sort of informal or formal collective over time with other dynamic, interesting folks like yourself who do this work uh, where you can uh, build some community and organization around it. Uh, Those paths outside of the one I'm in now appeal to me on different levels for different reasons. The underlying commonality for all of them as they address what's probably the biggest challenge for me in the work I do now. And that's, it's really lonely. And I I miss having colleagues. And it's uh, very easy to get lost in for me in my own head, to fall prey to imposter syndrome at times to question yourself to just not have someone that you can bounce ideas and thoughts off of. So as incredible as it is for me, and as much as I, I love this, and I know it's, it's my life's work, that's, on a very real level, uh, a challenge and struggle.
0: Yeah. I can totally relate to that. The, um, community piece is a huge part for me. that I've, I've really worked hard on the last six months to, to improve because yeah, when you're working, when you're a freelancer or when you're a consultant or a coach, it can be very lonely. Yeah. And yeah. It comes back to the structure thing as well. Absolutely. So do, do you relate to having just a, a purpose or a mission, you know, that kind of sums all this up? Absolutely. So
1: for me at this point, talking about the the subconscious uh, moving to the conscious it's uh, an appreciation of the circumstance i was born into this incredible reality that i cannot repay my parents for that i can't uh, repay the universe for Um, and the idea uh, for me goes to okay what are you going to do with this Um, how are you going to pay it forward and the motto that I live by and I actually engage with all of my clients only after they come to an agreement on it for themselves is that life is rigged in our favor. When I say our, I'll be sitting across the table from a prospective client and I'll say, listen, we'd love to start working together, but before we can, I'm going to put the statement out there um, and you know, need you to to agree to it and to us to be on the same page with it before we can move forward. But I want you to push back and explain to me why this doesn't hold true for you. If you believe that to be the case and the, uh, the great conversations that come of that are typically uh, along the lines of, you know what? I'm not sure I completely agree with that. You don't know some of the things that have happened you know, to me or for me. And uh, I've had some you know different difficult struggles that uh, sort of fly in the face of that to which I respond, please, sh- to the extent you're comfortable, share these things with me. And I know they're real and difficult and painful, and I have my own set. But we could talk about those things for as, as long as you want. But for the work we're doing right here, the very fact that you are sitting across the table from me uh, talking about potentially uh, paying me and working together to work on issues related to optimization, maximization, uh, fulfillment, and purpose, and we're not having a conversation around uh, security health, persecution, um, and sustenance is all the definition that we need and proof that we need to say that life is rigged in our favor in terms of the the types of conversations that we can't have. And so that's the the fundamental, you know, basis for me. And then the the purpose and mission going forward is to say, uh, what I want to work with people to do is develop a acutely high level of self-awareness to know who they are on a deep level, how they operate, how they think about the world, what they're best at, how they want to spend their time, and then pair that with the vulnerability to share that self-awareness. So no matter who I'm working with or what background they come from, they might be making a professional transition. They might be dealing with leadership challenges in a new executive role. They may be looking to start their own business and, and need guidance with that. These are the two pillars of my practice and, and my my focus. To say life is rigged in our favor. If you're talking about this, uh, you're likely you know coming from a situation where you've been born into a, a great circumstance. Just uh, given the reality of, of us connecting, let's pay it forward by possessing a, a very high degree of, of self awareness, cultivating that, which you know you hear a lot about these days, and it's a it's a common topic and thought and uh, point of conversation. But it's not sufficient, in my opinion, just to have that. You have to have this second point, which is cultivating the vulnerability to, to share this, the good and the bad, uh, with yeah. with other people. And so that's that's what really what drives me and, and what uh, what I use as the foundation for my practice.
0: You really try to take people away from a victim perspective. Absolutely. I I,
1: I talk to, to folks who come to me again in a difficult dynamic of I'm really just struggling or failing in my new role as ceo or i am miserable doing what i'm doing professionally and i want to move from finance to to healthcare, but i have no idea what to do how to do it or do i have any marketable skills or i want to start this business i've been thinking about for three years but i'm paralyzed and frozen in my process Um, you know i want to first ground people in the idea of hey, let's appreciate the fact that this is an incredible thing you can even think about or engage in to talk about. So let's have the broader level of perspective. And once we've established that, yeah, I want to and will take your issue extremely seriously and treat it with the gravity it deserves and be in it on a real level, but um, appreciate that we're having fun here and that we can do this on a level that uh, we're just fortunate to be able to think about and talk about because um, there are hundreds of millions of people around the world that don't have the privilege of this optionality or freedom of thought or exploration.
0: Gratitude's a big part of, of you. hundred percent. Well, amazing. To me. I mean, you'd be an absolute, extremely powerful force to have on your team. I can, I can see that just with your background, your intelligence, your perspective. It's, it's, it's really cool. I appreciate that. And uh, how can people reach out to you? How can people work with you? What's the easiest way to contact you? Right now, uh, my
1: practice has very fortunately and and gratefully uh, grown through just word of mouth referrals for my clients, community, etc. So since I started a few years ago, I I still actually haven't put uh, an external facing outward uh, presence um, uh, <laughs> online of uh, the things that I absolutely will and want to do, uh, with the book and website and all of that. Uh, so it really just is through my, uh, my email. Um, that I'm happy to, to share with anyone. It's just S Aurora at Gmail, S A R O R A at gmail.com. I'm always happy to talk to anyone about the work I do. And, and pointedly, I, I love talking to people who are just exploring the space for the first time or thinking about, you know, why they might want to work with a coach or, or what it means to, to do so or uh, how to think about the evaluation process. Um, as much as I talked before about wanting to work with everyone I come across um, and connect with, which is pretty much everyone I meet on some level, um, I am most interested in people finding um, the best fit for themselves. And I'll often, if I meet someone who's just at the early stages of exploring this space, Uh, you know, I'll say, Hey, here's what I do. Here's how I do it. I'd be honored and uh, excited to work with you. But I first and foremost want to make sure you find the right fit because I think there's an abundance of opportunity out there for, um, people to do this work. So why don't you chat with my buddy, Nathan? Uh, why don't you chat with these two other people first and, you know, get different perspectives, uh, from really smart, engaging people who do it and, and find the best fit for yourself. So uh, that's an open offer that I put out there to anyone who is listening to this or connects with it and just wants to uh, to talk about the space, uh, including people who are thinking about going into it the, themselves. Uh, there are a lot of people at the outset of my work here uh, years ago who are coaches who have been doing this successfully for some time, who very graciously gave me time and energy and perspectives, and uh, I absolutely want to pay that forward.
0: You talked about um, sharing vulnerably. Uh, So I give you an opportunity now. We always ask the guests at the end of the show about their dark side. Um, They're part of them that they're still not comfortable with or they don't like sharing. So how do you relate to your dark side? Do you have one?
1: Yeah. How do you embrace it? Absolutely. I struggle with being kind to myself. And specifically after my dad passed away, uh, it affected all of us in my nuclear family in different ways, my mom, my older sisters, and myself. It affected certain individuals of my family on a much deeper, difficult level um, than it did me. And there were a lot of things, there are a lot of things that I haven't been able to help other family members with or solve, for lack of a better word, or fix. Um, And for many years after the fact, I um, carried that with me as uh, a a failure, Uh, and I still do on some fundamental level. I I do feel like I failed at that, given everything my dad did uh, with the uh, circumstance that life gave him, coming to this country, establishing himself in the way he did, uh, giving us the life that he gave us, um, and doing it all with the uh, debilitating health condition he had for half of his life um, I, I feel like I should have, I should be able to, to do this for my family now, or I should be able to help my mom and sisters in, in this way, uh, to address the specific challenges or difficulties that have come up, uh, you know, since he passed. And, um, it took me, you know, uh, over 10 years to realize, uh, what I was carrying with that and how hard I was being on myself with that, um, to, uh, to appreciate also that as a result, I've, Overcompensated in various ways, personally and professionally, to uh, you know, make up for this failure on some level. I've gotten a lot better with it over the last, call it, five years. Um, I have a long way to go. The progress has not been linear, uh, and that's something that I carry with me. And it's uh, it's still pretty heavy. Uh, it's still something I I struggle with. I don't think I'll ever completely solve it or, re- or resolve it, but. Uh, I just focus on trying to make incremental progress over time, and, and the root of it is uh, trying to be kinder to myself as it relates to that. So, so that's uh mm. way I carry. Oh, thank
0: you for that. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's such. Well, I guess it's just not not being good enough. <laughs> if you want to sum it up, that feeling of not being good enough. Yeah, it's and, such
1: a, and for me, it's specific to this you know situation. Not yeah. not being blank enough to be able to help it solve it. You know. Good enough, smart enough, uh, available enough, uh, wise enough—you name it, right? It just whatever it, it was. Um, but I think yeah, not being good enough is a uh, is a great catch-all for it.
0: Yeah, and uh, that's that's where it comes from. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for listening. The, yeah, I appreciate it. Well, it's been a great conversation, and, and uh, yeah, thank you for taking us through your story the world is a better place for having you in it and following your passions and, and and giving back in the way you are. So thank you for doing what you do.
1: I, uh, I appreciate that. It was my pleasure and honor. Um, thank you for engaging me in such a great conversation. One thought that I would just leave you with around my path or goes back to the question of you have an idea about what you want to do next or um, you're thinking about going you know, into some space to figure that out. I had a lot of people who then and still now on, on some level will ask, Hey, you know, why are you doing this now? Why wouldn't you wait until, uh, you're X years old or have Y dollars in the bank and work with a few more, you know, big tech companies, one of which might you know, balloon to be the next, um, you know, huge behemoth before you, you start this type of business that people often associate, you know, it's a lifestyle business or it's a independent practice or whatever else. And, my response to that, just to share with you and your guests, just as you're thinking about things from a very personal level is one, uh, if you identify something that you are genuinely passionate about and honestly think you are great at or can be great at, um, go do the thing because on a very personal level, I experienced that we don't get to choose when we get on and off the merry go round of life. And, um, uh, you know, I don't know what comes of things Uh, after we get off this conversation today, uh, let alone what's going to happen five years or 10 years from now, you just don't know in uh, the uh, trite or cliched way of um, all we have is today. And you you don't know what happens tomorrow. Um, I lived it. I've seen it. And uh, it's just something that is deeply personal and important to me now to to live out and share um, because uh, we just don't know. So uh, go do
0: the thing that's a great thing to leave people to ponder with thanks Sunil thank you yeah the folks my conversation with the beautiful Sunil Aurora. what a wonderful intelligent guy I hope got a lot out of that conversation you can email Sunil at sarora at gmail.com if you'd like to start a conversation with him or explore some of those topics in more depth with him and as always I'd appreciate if you could share the show around give it a like on Facebook comment let me know what you think let me know your thoughts what you think about the show who you'd like to see on the show anything at all I'd appreciate that and I'll be back next week for episode number 27 of the Nathan Seawood Show that was the Nathan
1: Seawood Show personal conversations with powerful men